0: The scripture reading today is from the book of Daniel. The first uh, part is Daniel 5, verses 8 through 17. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In, that, in the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means.
1: Uh,
2: So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, are you Daniel the one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah I will I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you and that you have made you have insight intelligence and outstanding wisdom the wise men came with the wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means but they could not explain it now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you if you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered to the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read... I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Um, Daniel chapter 6 verses 3 through 14. Now Daniel was distinguished himself among the administrators and saw traps by his exponential qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom at this the administrators in the saw traps uh, tried to find group uh, grounds for charges against daniel in his in his conduct of government affairs but they were unable to do so they could not find no they could find no corruption in him cuz he was trustworthy he was trustworthy and neither corrupt or negligent, negligent. finally these men were said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So the administrators and shot traps went as a group to the king and said, may King King Darius live forever. The royal administrator's perfects sawtraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so it cannot be alerted in a- accordance, accordance with the law and meds and Persians, which cannot be repelled. So King Darius um, put the decree in writing.
0: Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asked God for help. <clears throat> and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you your majesty would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, "The, de- the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed." Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty, or to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Those were a lot of tough names to name. Good job. There once was an unhoused man who made his home in a barrel in the center of a town marketplace, and he begged for a living. But life wasn't always like that for this man. He grew up in a life of relative privilege, as his father was a banker, and he was responsible for generating the country's currency. This young man eventually followed in his father's footsteps and worked together with his father, but they got caught in a scandal. They began defacing the country's currency because they were afraid of the proliferation of counterfeit currency. After losing everything, including his citizenship, this young man had a, uh, a bit of a life moral awakening. He decided to, instead of returning to a life of comfort and of luxury, he would choose a life of poverty as a protest to the ways of the world and the uh, social values and the institutions that he saw were corrupt. He challenged great leaders that he met, people like Alexander the Great and Plato himself that he met personally. He was a cynical young man. Well, I don't know how young he was at that point, but he was cynical that all people were vain, were pretentious, and self-deceived. Thus, he came to be known as Diogenes the Cynic. Diogenes was a 4th century Greek who, uh, person who was post, most famously known for walking around in broad daylight with a lit lantern. And when people would come across him, he would, they would ask him, what are you doing? And he says, I'm looking for a moral and honest man. Diogenes lived as a living signpost challenging the integrity of his contemporaries. Now, Diogenes's approach is a bit radical for most of us, and perhaps just a bit self-righteous, right? He sets the example of what it looks like to confront the accepted norms of culture and question whether true honesty and integrity actually exist. Now, we might ask the same questions. It's a question we might see as we read the news feed, right? When we see uh, calls for impeachment or the misuse of public funds and public positions for personal gain or having past actions dug up and questioned when you have a public position. We don't have to live a life like Diogenes to express the same cynicism to the world we live in. It's a lot easier to get attention nowadays through a viral Twitter feed, to a a tweet, rather than walking around holding a lantern in broad daylight, right? But is that the only way that we can respond to the lack of integrity around us? Perhaps there's another way. In our Living Right Side Up, in an Upside Down message series this month, we're looking at how God calls us to confront the accepted definitions of success and of leadership in our culture. Today, we're going to look uh, at Daniel's life and how his, he is an example of what it looks like to live a life of integrity in the midst of a world that seems to not value honesty and integrity. Now, a definition of integrity might be this. It's having a sense of consistency and sincerity with no deception or pretense. Integrity's overriding quality is a sense of wholeness and being undivided. In fact, the word integrity is related to the word integer, the mathematical uh, term for a whole number. In other words, there's no discrepancy between a person's public life and a person's private life. People of integrity have nothing to hide and have nothing to fear. In the life of Daniel today, we're going to look at this quiet, enduring shadow of integrity. The quiet, the enduring, and the shadow of integrity. In Daniel chapter 5, verse 7 and 8, we are told that King Belshazzar has a troubling vision of this handwriting on the wall during a banquet. And so he's troubled and he's looking for an interpretation and he promises great rewards to anyone who can help him with the interpretation. And we're told that all the king's wise men came in. I mean, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't be vying for great honor and the king's favor with the promise of rewards and, and wealth and power? This is an open opportunity to shine and to be known. Everyone was clamoring for the opportunity. Everyone, that is, except one person. Daniel was absent. He stays quiet. It's only until the queen mother commends Daniel to Bel- Belshazzar, and she says, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. Daniel isn't seeking out the power and the attention. In this chapter, if you joined us for last week's message from chapter 2, we find that the previous king, King Nebuchadnezzar, is also troubled by a dream, and he offers a similar reward. And as other wise men are chomping at the bit to win the king's favor, we find Daniel does the same thing. He's not there. He's remarkably silent there too. It's only when Nebuchadnezzar's fixer, Arioch the commander of the guard comes to put Daniel to death, that Daniel actually responds to the king's request. He doesn't seek the influence, he doesn't seek the authority, at least from human kings that he serves. Yet Daniel's wisdom and skill are recognized and called upon when needed. His quietness wasn't the silent treatment like that of a spurned lover or a grumpy teenager. When called upon, He did not fail to deliver the news to King Belshazzar, even though the news was of the king's demise. His integrity came not from seeking favor of the human kings that he served, but the favor of the one true heavenly king. His integrity with the living God helped him to live with this integrity before the kings of Babylon. His message and his work were done in this wholeness and with transparency, even though the news was not favorable to the person receiving the message. Upon receiving this interpretation, we find that that very night, it comes to pass. The Medes invade the city, and Belshazzar is killed right after this banquet, where he's told of his demise. In the following chapter, in chapter 6, those that worked under Daniel are so jealous of the favor that he has received that they're looking to take him out. So they... um, and his, but his life and his past were squeaky clean. There was no dirt to uncover, no uncouth photos on Facebook, uh, on, on, in his yearbook or questionable YouTube clips to be found. In verses 4 and 5 of chapter 6, we're told that the administrators and satraps are trying to find grounds for charges against him, but they could find nothing. And so they say, we will never find any basis for the charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. When the advisors, uh, with, where the advisors attempt to entrap Daniel's lack of integrity, at least in their eyes, before the king, it would seem favorable for Daniel to re- at least hire a lawyer, hire a publicist, you know, get a social media comment, uh, coordinator to get ahead of the narrative, right? Yet we find Daniel does nothing. He's remarkably silent. He simply continues on with his routines. Now, in our world today, you almost have to build this online persona, have a rock-solid LinkedIn resume, an impeccably curated Instagram profile to get noticed. You have to have an active Twitter feed to show that you're engaged. And all of these strategies are there to, be, to get you noticed. And if you're silent, you're considered a loser. Or uh, these noisy mediums quickly turn into weapons against you if you don't play the game right. And in this week alone, We saw the news of how a comedian named Shane Shane Gillis was hired and immediately fired before he even started with Saturday Night Live because of some racist videos that surfaced. And even world leaders can't get away from this, right? Justin Trudeau, the the prime minister of Canada, had to deal with blowback from three different brown-faced photos or black-faced photos that surfaced in a matter of 12 hours. Daniel's example shows us how it's possible... To flourish even when we don't seek to play the game according to the rules or the perceived rules around us we don't need to stress over who's getting the attention and who's not we don't need to have all these high-profile positions we need only to seek to honor God trusting that honoring God is ultimately what is most important this week my daughter Ashley got to meet one of her heroes Greta Thunberg Now, and those are her friends. You can see how happy they are, right? (laughs) If you haven't heard of Greta, she's this inspirational 16-year-old from Sweden who started a worldwide movement of climate change action, culminating in this strike, this walkout last Friday around the world. Millions of young people walking out of the schools for climate change. Now, Greta was in town to challenge U.S. lawmakers to seriously listen to scientists and to take action for the sake Of our present and also our future. Some have even suggested that the impact of Greta's actions and advocacy warrant her nomination to a Nobel Peace Prize. And certainly this prize would raise the profile of the cause and fund further work in this area. But there are also reservations that people are expressing of awarding the Nobel Peace Prize to someone who has enjoyed such a rapid and meteoric rise. It's a, remind, it is also, it's a reminder of the predicament that a past Nobel Peace Prize winner and current Myanmar politician, Aung San Suu Kyi, has. She won a Nobel Peace Prize in 1991 for her nonviolent struggle towards democracy and human rights um, in Myanmar. And she ended up under house arrest for 15 years, even though she was voted to be the prime minister. Recently, though, she's been under scrutiny for her country's discrimination against minority Muslim groups that live there, called the Rohingya. As a result, some critics have called for her Nobel Peace Prize to be recalled. The work and advocacy of Thunberg and of Ong should never be discounted. While what they have accomplished is significant and it's a gift to the world we live in, but in a world that revels and rewards in heroes for the rapid attention that they receive, the enduring aspect of integrity is often overlooked. If a Nobel Peace Prize winner and their integrity can be questioned, who, who, can, who can even stand a chance? Can we? The Daniel 6 passage that we read is a setup for the famous Daniel and the Lion's Den story. And if you're familiar with that story, it's there's Daniel... Um, Daniel has broken this direct edict of the king and is sentenced to a night in the lion's den, which essentially is death. And there's a whole other message to be preached about that and his response. But what you might not realize is that Daniel isn't the young man that you might recall from the picture book Sunday school stories. In fact, Daniel is around 70 years old at the time of this story. He was removed as a teenager from Jerusalem when he began to serve under Nebuchadnezzar and who reigned for 40 years. If Daniel were our contemporary, he would have worked for a single administration for his entire career. But then he goes on to serve Belshazzar in chapter 5, Nebuchadnezzar's successor, and eventually King Darius, who we meet in chapter 6. Darius is the third king that Daniel has served with and the second empire that he is serving under, Daniel has this long history of successful service in multiple administrations, and he's awarded postings and gifted with recognition, but he never gives a hint of seeking them for himself. Now, if you don't find yourself seeking out prominent positions and power positions, that's okay, because Daniel didn't do that either. Yet, because of God's favor on his life, under Darius in chapter 6, we're told that Daniel is given the third most prominent position in the entire empire— He's in charge of collecting tributes from the entire empire and um, uh, to fund the work of the empire. As the story continues further, we find that Daniel continues his recognized work for a fourth king, King Cyrus, the Persian, in a third empire. All this time, Daniel is not living in his homeland. He's being educated in foreign languages and mythology, and he's serving multiple pagan kings who do not share his faith convictions. He's not with his people or doing what he thought he would be doing. Yet he flourishes in these settings. Not because he kowtows to the kings that he's serving or his peers. He only bows to the, his life before the one and true king, the Lord God of Israel. His life was a living testament to the meaning of his name. In Hebrew, Daniel's name means God is my judge. I wonder what it would look like if we could live that same conviction in our lives. Unlike Diogenes, the cynic, Daniel exhibits this way of challenging the culture around him with his integrity, without being in your face and without being irrelevant. He quietly works, and he doesn't seek the accolades, but because he's there to please God first, and because of that, he ends up being a beneficiary of God's blessing, and he's given tremendous influence and authority. As we think about the work that we do and the leaders that we might work with or work for, it's easy to think that the only way to success and recognition is to play the game of rubbing shoulders with the right people and getting the perfect resume lined up. CEOs and politicians that get the attention are typically those that are loud, that have those loud qualities like charisma and galvanizing and attention-getting personalities. More quiet qualities like humility, authenticity, Connectiv- connection and, and integrity are not often immediately valued, but they are just as important. Our cultures, especially in this town, tell us that unless you're ambitious, and you're not, then you're not doing anything meaningful. But that is a lie when it comes to God and His kingdom. Daniel's life shows us what happens when a life is lived before an audience of one the audience of the living God of the universe. When our lives are lived in alignment with the one true king, we find that there is a resilience and there is a stability that is able to endure all changing whims and even empires that rise around us. We find that we don't have to pursue the glitz and the glamour that the world tells us that is important for success. And that kind of integrity is enduring, but also very freeing. How did Daniel nurture this life integrity. When Daniel's jealous peers conspired to take out Daniel by using his faith against him, how did he react? What did he do differently towards them? Absolutely nothing, at least towards them. Daniel learns, we're told, that this new law has passed, yet Daniel continues with the practice of his faith just as he had done before. In chapter, 10, I mean, chapter 6, verse 10, we're told Daniel has learned that this decree has been published. And what does he do? He goes home to his upstairs room, opens his windows towards Jerusalem, and three times a day, just as he's done before, he gets down on his knees and he prays, giving thanks to God, just as he had done before. Nothing has changed for him. Even though this law means his life is on the line. Daniel came under the shadow of the Almighty God, likely praying a psalm from the Jewish prayer book, like Psalm 91, verse 1, that says, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. In those times of prayer, he was reminding himself of who God was, and his place in the midst in that relationship. When faced with adversity and challenges to his integrity, Daniel does not change a single thing. He didn't ultimately trust what the king thought of him or what his peers thought of him. He didn't feel compelled to sacrifice his integrity for them or to retaliate against his adversaries. He simply comes under the shadow of the Almighty. The source of his integrity was a deep, abiding connection with the living God, nurtured through prayer that was evident through the past 40 years, even earlier, through serving King Nebuchadnezzar. We can learn to bolster our integrity from David, Daniel's example. For Daniel, prayer was routine. We're told he does it three times a day. The number of times you do it is not important. It's the fact that it's routine. It's part of a rhythm that he practiced. And prayer was humble. He bowed down on his knees, recognizing his inability to affect change. And it was only God and in his hands that, that is able to do that. Third prayer was transparent. He didn't hide. He simply flung open the windows, and he continued to pray as he had done before. We learn from Daniel that our prayer isn't done as a device for getting things done or invoking God's wrath against our enemies. Prayer becomes a means of communing with God that transforms our hearts and leads us forward in the way with him. Prayer is simply learning to be with God, who is the one that makes us whole. We're told his prayer is filled with thanksgiving to God. When we give thanks to God, we turn our eyes from what seems to be the harsh spotlight of situations that we find ourselves in, and we begin to recognize the gracious shadows of God's character and his work around us. Spotlights, if you've ever stood in front of one, they are noticeably hot and uncomfortable, and they wash out all of the rest of the scene before you. But shadows are a little more subtle, and they take some attention to notice. When we give thanks to God, we begin to pay attention to how God is faithful. When we give thanks to God, we recognize that any favor that we have enjoyed in this world is simply because of God's favor over us, not because of anything that we have done ourselves. When we give thanks to God, we begin to see our adversaries less as adversaries, but as people to have compassion upon because their responses are really coming out of a place of fear or of insecurity. And that's what drives them to act negatively towards us. In this kind of prayer, we begin to hear God and to become more like him. We become more whole and we become, uh, when we come under the shadow of the Almighty God. In prayer, we begin to recognize where the source of our integrity lies. And in recalling God's faithfulness, regardless of the situation we might find ourselves in. John Fletcher is an 18th century Methodist pastor who writes on prayer and recollection. And there's a quote right above my head here, which says, Recollection is a dwelling within ourselves, a being abstracted from the creature and turned towards God. Fletcher continues to expand on this idea of turning towards God through recollection and through prayer. And in silence and in prayer, we begin to disentangle ourselves from the world and begin observing and following the order of God for ourselves. And we begin shutting out the ear against all those curious and unprofitable matters, those voices, those activities that tell us what seem to really matter in this world when they don't. Recollection is not merely remembering what to thank God for but it's also recalling the truth of oneself in Christ. We are prone to lose ourselves. We are prone to attach ourselves to things other than God in search of power and of meaning and of value. And in this sense, prayer is where we embrace our true identity as God's children. And that is what offers us a life of true integrity. For Daniel prayer was his constant practice to remind him of where his trust lied and in whom his identity came from in the face of tremendous opposition. He came under the shadow of the almighty living God. Coming under the shadow of the almighty also grants us resolve to not have to seek out the loud and the fast spotlights and accolades that the world appears to depend on. Coming under the shadow of the Almighty also enables us to be people of integrity that don't wilt under the spotlights of worldly whims, demands, and pressures. You might ask, how do we practically come under the shadow of the Almighty? Certainly it's in our prayers before God. But we especially come under the shadow of the Almighty through the prayers of someone else before God. And this other person's life becomes a living and a dying prayer for us because he longs even more than we do to make us whole. This other person who offers his life as a prayer is none other than Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is the only human to have ever lived a life of perfect integrity and whose integrity itself casts a quiet and an ever-enduring shadow over history when he goes over to the cross for us. And it's at the cross where we experience the hope of wholeness, not only for ourselves, but for all of creation. Jesus takes our lack of integrity and gifts us with his perfect integrity that makes our souls whole and, most importantly, makes our relationship with a holy God whole. Wearing a cross or marking Christianity as your preferred religion on a census is not what makes us whole. It's coming under the shadow of the cross only that makes us whole. Now, whatever challenges and joys you face, remember that it is under the quiet, the enduring shadow of the cross of Christ that we can find hope for strength and for wholeness. And it is in that shadow that we become people of true integrity. Will you come to Jesus today? Amen.